Hey friends, this is Jeffrey Wu with the Health Via Mar Nutrition Podcast, the HVMN Podcast. And I'm really excited to be speaking with Travis Christofferson today. And this is an especially special one given his launch of his new book. And it's really a tour de force in metabolism and some of the most cool aspects of what we know about ketosis and, and, and that intellectual journey and that intellectual heritage. So really an honor to have you on the program, Travis. Good to speak with you. Wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me, Jeff. So we init uh, initially came onto my radar with the passing of Dr. Richard Veach earlier this year, and you wrote a really nice, wonderful eulogy about some of the aspects of his life. And that was my first opening of just kind of the personality behind the science. Obviously, have related a lot to his intellectual papers and, and work and, and knowing him from that context, but didn't really know the, the, the young man that was, you know, growing up, learning from Krebs and going, getting to an aircraft accident and, and all of that. So really wanted to give you kudos and shout out to that, to that work there. But um, before diving into the story here, I'd love to learn a little bit, but a bit more about your background. I mean, the breadth of the scientific history, as well as your mastery of the metabolic processes and the metabolic biochemistry, I think is really first class. And that's maybe I have some credibility speaking on that, being active in the space and working with some of the folks that are mentioned in the book. Um, your explanations are, are really well done. You know, what's your story? Where did all that come from? Not, it's very nonlinear. So I, yeah, I, I you know, my, my undergrad is in biology and biochemistry, molecular biology. And then my master's degree is in materials engineering and science, but I did the, my thesis work on enzyme kinetics. So I was always kind of been in the biochem field. Then I took just, just you know, life got in the way, uh, married kids. And I went back and, and I've always had sort of this love for writing. And, you know, it's kind of, I don't know, it was a midlife crisis. I think it was my, my low forties and I, I wasn't particularly happy with my vocation. So I just gave it a shot. And, and the reason I did is I, I I actually was three credits shy of my master's, so I went back to finish it. They allowed me this latitude to do an independent study class, and I was deciding what to do it on. And I just happened to be leafing through Kindle, and I ran into this book called uh, Cancer is a Metabolic Disease by Tom Seyfried. And I almost didn't buy it. It was $78. My finger hovered over it, you know, and I finally clicked it and then just was taken aback by this, you know, this tomb on a non-standard theory of cancer and all this evidence that had accumulated over a hundred years. And so that's what I did this thesis work or this uh, independent study class on. And that, you know, Tom had obviously written this textbook and I felt like somebody want, should write a sort of, you know, in, in, in the same spirit of what this recent book is, the, the story of the scientist, because it's such a rich redemption story that goes all the way back to Otto Warburg which was, you know, forgotten, viewed as a stain in his career and then resurrected in, on this century with Tom Seyfried and, and others. And now cancer metabolism is one of the hot topics, you know, in all of oncology. So that that's really what started this kind of process. And then, you know, I got the bug and it was, it's fun to write. I enjoy the process. I really enjoy the history. And like you said, of, of delving into these guys' personalities and getting to know them. And, and that's the kind of style that I like to write with. And so that's, that's what I'm doing now. Awesome. Yeah, I noticed that this is your this is your third book. I know you co-authored a 
book with uh, Professor Dom D'Agostino, which we've had on the program a couple of times. He's a he's a he's a he's a friend. So it sounds like you know there's infinite things to write about. If even if you had a midlife crisis, uh, what drew you towards scientific writing? I mean, why not let's write about motorcycles or right or, or, <laughs> yeah. or whatever? Yeah, the typical mid-age convertibles and, and hair pieces, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I've always just been a biochemical geek. I've always loved, I, I, you know, I still kick myself for not staying in the field and getting a PhD. And I just love science. I love the process. I love how the human body works. And I, you know, that, that's always been kind of my first intellectual love. So that's what I wanted, wanted to write about. Got it. And in terms of gravitating towards metabolic processes and i would say like really the changing landscape in the understanding of the science today and i think it's like just a very active almost vociferous debate on which theories which schools are are, are, are correct and, you know were you personally like experimenting with fasting or ketogenic diet was it from a personal like biohacking perspective that you got into this line of inquiry or was this purely from a scientific endeavor and you, you found that this was a very interesting space yeah, it started. Yeah, it started with just pure scientific curiosity, but then as you learn more, you know, you get curious about what's going to feel like, and you just try these things. And so, yeah, I've, I've since 2014 when I started, or 2013 when I started really getting writing the book. Yeah, I mean, I, I've adopted a low carb diet, played around with exogenous ketones, all those things, and it's it's another level of sort of drawing you in and you becoming personally invested in this stuff. You know, I think that that really sort of heightens your curiosity and just adds another level of your ability to write about it is if, you know, if you're experiencing it yourself. Yeah, cool. So it's really just like looking for books and literally Tom Seafried's textbook, essentially. And you're like, huh, Yeah, it was that kind space. of piques my interest. And boom, that was your entry route into this whole field. Yeah, yeah. He was, you know, to me, that book was just groundbreaking. And it was for me, it was the introduction to all these things, the ketogenic diet, because according to his theory, you know, that's the low hanging fruit for, for metabolic cancer therapy is just shifting away from this carbohydrate metabolism to fat metabolism. And so that was for me, the introduction <clears throat> to all these things. And I had no idea, you know, that the really the broad ranging implications of this sort of form of metabolism. And I always kind of wanted to write, the, the, you know, a similar book on ketone metabolism because it's so far reaching and has such an implication for general health for everybody on the planet. And so this is, you know, I, I took, I dallied around for a few years and found reasons not to do it. But then once COVID came along and I was locked in the house, there was no reason not to. And it was also, you know, Dr. Beach had died and it was right after the Metabolic Health Summit in, in LA. Yeah. And so I was, I was, I was, back I was there. That. So I guess so you were there as well. Yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. We, we didn't meet in person, but yeah, we were in the right. same vicinity. Yeah, exactly. So it was a good time. It was just, he, you know, there was a lot of talk about his legacy and what it wanted to be. And so I felt like I could hopefully, you know, help in that regard. Cool. Yeah. Let's, you know, dive into it. I mean, I just wanted to share that. I mean, my journey into this whole space was mainly from a first from a performance perspective and then from a longevity perspective. And uh, I got interested into the whole aspect of ketosis through fasting. And now I think, and I think in the book, I think it sounds like Veach also shared a similar or established or maybe planted the seed within me or, or we came to similar conclusions that I think fasting's benefit for longevity is mediated through ketones. It sounded like you came from a 
pure science perspective, like looking at the research and the textbooks and, and the writing to come into the experimentation side. And I was experimenting with fasting for longevity and then backing into ketosis as the metabolic mechanism of action of why this is even working. So cool to see us kind of sharing similar interests from pretty different areas of, of entry. So yeah, let's, let's talk about the book. So Ketones, a fourth fuel. Uh, it's currently the number one biochemistry book on Amazon. So congrats. How's the reception? How's progress there? And it sounds like the kick in the butt was from COVID. Um, but obviously, I imagine that you have been doing a lot of research and background interviews before, you know, 2020. Or was it really just like you were on fire for the last few months getting this out there? I mean, again, having been active in the space for the last, you know, five, six years, very, very good lay overview for anyone that just entering the space and wants to get like the biggest macroscopic history of how these inventions or discoveries came to being, as well as having some, I think really the best explanations on some of the very technical details of the Krebs cycle, the, uh, the, the intermediates, uh, the ion gradients, all the nitty gritty around, you know, the Delta G of ATP and free energy. I mean, like really, really nitty gritty stuff. And I think it's been that quite well and quite accessibly. Can you talk us through like the actual writing and then probably the, a lot of the homework before then and, and how it culminated? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there, there was a lot of overlap between the, the first, the first book tripping over the truth about cancer metabolism in this book. And because it goes back down to Warburg. So I'd already done a lot of research on his personality, his research. And of course, Hans Krebs, you know, if, you're, if you've ever taken biochemistry class, that's one of the central principles is learning about the Krebs cycle. What I didn't know, and it, it's such a beautiful story, is how connected those three were, that they were each, each other's student. So it made this, you know, this beautiful sort of harmonic resonance to their lives and their science. Um, so most of the, you know, I, I, had, I had the basic, a lot of the research and the, the way I wanted to kind of outline the book, I already figured out. And beyond that, it's, you know, it's just reading articles, getting quotes, history, interviews, all that kind of thing. And, and then, and then really, you know, to try to explain ketosis and the, the benefits of beta hydroxybutyrate to people, you really have to narrow it down to what, what you want to say. And there's these just sort of two pivotal things that I really tried to emphasize these biochemical things that made hydroxybutyrate that make it unique. And I tried to just really focus on those and what spins out of that, why that's unique, what that means for our health. And, you know, you can, it's so easy to get lost in the science. So I hope, thank you for saying that, that, I, that it came across clear because it's, it's not, that's the hardest part I think is making it accessible to most people. Yeah. And I think, you know, and let's, let's talk to the characters, these people, uh, again, like the three giants of the space, Warburg, Hans Krebs and then Veach, uh, the former two are both Nobel laureates in their in their field. And then Veach obviously unfortunately passed away earlier this year. I think one of the things that I think makes it especially accessible is showing their personalities in, in a way that textbooks do not. I remember like some of the things that you explained are in your high school AP biology textbook, right? Like okay, mitochondria, ribosomes, all, all the structures of the cell. But even just going through like the battle stories of how like cytochrome A, cytochrome B, how, you know, how these things were actually identified. It's like, wow, like I can feel like I can kind of step in those shoes and maybe follow that reasoning. And if I were in the right place, right time, if, you know, maybe be alongside helping make those contributions. It's, it feels very tangible that the science is not some 
boring old textbook that you're just memorizing to get an A in your high school biology class. These are real passionate people, normal people with their weird idiosyncrasies, needing to get jobs, needing to get paid, uh, doing science because of, uh, of that curiosity. So it was really cool to even go back to Lavoisier and some of the questions around like the vital energy of life. I'd love to just like walk through some of the characters and what you found to be some of the interesting anecdotes with some of these early characters and how that led to Warburg. Uh, and, and some of the more science-oriented geeks might remember some of these names. Uh, it'd be help, helpful to track a little bit of those names, some of the interesting anecdotes and how that led to our first main character, uh, Otto Warburg. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. You know, it's fascinating because when you think back to what they were doing in those days, they had no no idea how the body generated energy. You know, you're just groping in the dark to try to come up with clues. Um, and and the the you know you could start anywhere with this, but I started with Joseph Priestley, who discovered oxygen, and and he was in a lab, you know, by himself, and he he burnt mercuric oxide, isolated oxygen. And breathed it into his lungs and felt walked his lab and felt this sort of you know light feeling. He had no idea what that meant, you know what what it. And so he did a European tour and he sort of handed this line of research off to Lavoisier, this brilliant French chemist who had a suspicion that combustion, which is just the act of burning, was the same. And that's how sort of organisms generated energy. We call it respiration, but it's the same thing as combustion. And so he took Priestley's gas, this oxygen, and did this funny experiment. He put a guinea pig in a bucket and measured the amount of carbon dioxide it breathed out. And then at the same time, measured the amount of heat it released. By, he put the bucket in another bucket with ice, and he measured the heat by the amount of ice that melted, so the weight of the water. Then he did this same experiment with the equivalent amount of carbon that released the exact same amount of carbon dioxide, measured the heat released, and it was the same. So his conclusion was respiration and combustion are one and the same. And it's just, you know, guinea pigs and buckets full of ice that he came to this conclusion. Of course, he was right. And that was that set off in motion this, you know, all these other guys like Warburg to go, OK, we know this is a chemical reaction in the body. It's combustion. Where is it occurring? How is it occurring? And they began looking. And the first spot, you know, they, they knew that oxygen was traveled throughout the cells via hemoglobin. And they, by then they knew that respiration was probably occurring in the cells. So they just made this leap of logic. Well, perhaps iron is its ability to coax oxygen to a location is a site of respiration in the cell. And then Warburg did his famous 1931 experiment to prove this, that it was cytochrome A where combustion was occurring. And, you know, you fast forward and then Hans Krebs elucidated the Krebs cycle and, and yeah. it really took yeah, off. Yeah, that. yeah, no, let's, yeah, let's put a bookmark there and, and deep dive into, into Warburg's work. But I think, I think it was just brilliantly stated of how you started with Priestley and Lavoisier, where I think those experiments are very tangible to everyday people. Like Priestley, like, you know, burnt mercuric oxide, got some weird gas and just like sniffed it. And was like, oh, I feel kind of buzzed or, or, or like happy or just feel energetic. And that, that's something that like, I feel like a lot like your, our childhood experimentalist would do. Sure. You know, breathing in a, a gas that you produce out of your own uh, experiment is something that a child would do or a kind of an extreme biohacker would do. But I think it's very relatable to the curious side of all of us where how is this going to impact me? And I think that made the science much more tan relatable to me where, 
again, I think we can all, if we were in that time context, we can maybe make those leaps, which seemed quite, you know, beautiful, elegant today, but probably at the time was, was game changing, right? Like this magical life force of being alive and not a rock is something that's akin to fire. That's maybe now it seems like reasonable, but at the time, right, we seem pretty different from a burning log. Um, so I, and I, but I think like, but I think the experiments are, again, we're so, I think graspable where it's like, okay, if you're like measuring the amount of heat and then you're, and, and when you're doing combustion, you're actually gaining mass because, uh, oxygen is actually binding towards the, the, the ashes. Like those are just like pretty elegant experiments that you don't need like a PhD to understand. It's like, okay, these are, you need some basic arithmetic and some sense of physics to kind of be able to piece together the logic. So I think it was like a very, very accessible entry point for, I think most people can kind of dive in and, uh, and start there. I mean, I'm curious your thoughts. I mean, I, I'm just kind of geeking out and just I kind of the, the descriptions of their work, but I think the storytelling was great there. I, I, any further thoughts on, on those two early kind of fun experiments? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It was very simple back then. And, and, you know, I, I, and don't, you know, you also uh, you tell the story of how the electron transport chain came to be with Peter Mitchell. And that was based on his imagination. I mean, he, he literally conjured up, you know, based on previous work with bacteria, but he, he just sort of like Einstein's thought experiments, he imagined this electron transport chain and the chemo-osmotic gradient and how ATP was produced before there was any experimental evidence. So there's also that power of just wandering and thinking, you know, that, that people sort of, and, and, you know, today um, it's not like it was obviously back then. My wife works on a deep underground neutrino experiment, the physics lab. We have a repurposed gold mine here in the Black Hills. And um, the, the amount of technology, you know, it's this big science has changed so much, but the commonality is, is, you know, they are basically just groping in the dark. And, and they are curious and they don't know what they're, they're, they know they're looking for something, but they don't even know if it exists. And, and we need to remember that, that, that how important that is, that, that, that human instinct of curiosity and how do we cherish, how do we, how do we foster that? And, and, and she answers all the time. She gives a lot of the tours for politicians down there and they always ask, what is this good for? We don't know. We, we cannot give you the answer to that, you know, and there was, a great a Nobel Prize winning chemist who won the Nobel Prize for this theoretical sort of physical thing with uh, electron spin. And they asked him after the Nobel Prize, do you see any practical application for this? He said, none whatsoever. And then a few years later, it was the backbone of the MRI. So, so the take home point is, you know, these guys were just curious and they were just looking and groping and thinking. And we don't know what's going to spin out of that. Maybe nothing. But some of the time it just, you know, it changes the way we're all going to live. It's these huge technological leaps and understanding that, that affect our, our lives. hundred percent. Yeah. I think we could probably talk about the culture of research and maybe in, in, in bemoan a little bit of the loss of that creativity and freedom, uh, maybe towards the back half of our conversation here. But yeah, I think similar to Einstein's theory of relativity, right? I mean, it's 19 early 1900s and fast forward 40 years later. I mean, that was a culmination of having nuclear power, nuclear weapons, you know, changed, you know, the, the modern era. So yes, I mean, I think a lot of these things are, it takes generation. I think, I think the nice quote, oftentimes takes the next generation to understand how to apply these insights. So 
Let's dive into Warburg. So you mentioned the Warburg can- uh, theory of cancer metabolism. He's obviously cited a prolific researcher, uh, uh, published uh, scientific author, Nobel laureate. Can we talk about his contributions to metabolism? What was he inspired by and how he intersected with interesting scientific contemporaries like Einstein and how that connected to our uh, cast member number two, uh, Hans Krebs. Yeah, yeah, Warburg, he was obviously, you know, he was a character and, and, and everybody was conflicted by him. He was, he was genius, he, but he was a very hard person to deal with. He was petty and, and sort of conjured up enemies. He thought, you know, he was competitive, but he was equally compelling and just, you know, people were gravitated towards him. He was such a unique guy, unquestionably brilliant. At the time they had the, the Gestalt, um, Max Planck Institute in Germany was you became a member of the society and then you never really, you had unlimited resources at your fingertips and you could just research any subject you wanted. And you could even skip, you know, just wander around for a year. And he was told that when he was hot, when he was became a member that you can just wander in the woods for a year. No one will bother you. No administration, no grant writing, no teaching, just, you know, they just set these guys free. So he had this unique, you know, sort of work environment and you know the, the, what he accomplished was commensurate to what he got. He, he was first. He first showed where energy metabolism was occurring at the cytochrome that it was a combustion reaction with iron and oxygen. He was also a big. You know, he was he he wanted his namesake to be on cancer biology, and everybody sort of the Warburg effect uh, that you know there's this glycolytic shift in cancer cells towards sort towards glucose metabolism or away from oxidative phosphorylation. And then when the 50s came and, and DNA was discovered, that was seen as, as his, you know, the scar in his career, the thing he messed up. Um, but now we're starting to really appreciate what that meant. And, and it was underappreciated at the time. But he, um, his student was Hans Krebs. He needed an assistant and he took a chance with Krebs. Krebs was actually an MD that just wanted to go into research. And so Krebs entered his lab inexperienced, but he was a, a brilliant student. He caught on quick. They actually came up with that experiment that won Warburg the Nobel Prize in 31 to determine where the oxidation was taking place. And Krebs, you know, Krebs was a unique guy, too, where he was very he just was unconfident. He didn't believe in himself and he needed a lot of sort of time to develop into himself. And when he finally was supposed to be a one year appointment in Warburg's lab, but it ended up being four and Warburg basically had to kick him out. But then once he finally, you know, was set free, he, he had discovered the urea cycle, the Krebs cycle. He just became this extremely prolific, brilliant chemist that mapped out, you know, large part of energy metabolism today. And then, of course, you know, as you know, then, then Richard Beach entered Krebs lab in Oxford. And that's where the story to Richard Beach jumps in. Yeah. Yeah. So before moving on to Krebs and, and, and our third character... Richard Beach describing them as like Pokemon or, or Star Wars characters, but these are real people. Let's talk a little bit more about the Warburg effect. So the observation at the time was that these cancer cells seem to use the glycolytic pathway. So basically going from glucose to lactate, this more primitive form of metabolism, right? It doesn't require respiration or oxy- oxygen to kick off uh, ATP generation, where healthy cells oftentimes use oxidative phosphorylation. Why is that relevant today? I mean, I mean, so basically, I think, like, why did it fall out of favor towards the DNA theory of cancer 
I mean, can you talk us through the scientific discoveries that shifted the perception or, 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 or the, 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 I guess, the perception of the academy on, on, on these theories, on these subjects? Yeah, yeah, that's another great story. So, so Warburg was the premier sort of cancer biologist in the 20s. And when he released his theory on the prime cause of cancer, that it was a shift to, um, you know, to glycolysis in the presence of oxygen, that was taken seriously as the number one theory at the time. Then a German chemist, Hanselman, discovered that the chromosomes, when they're finally able, microscopy was able to look at the chromosomes, discovered they were broken, tangled, um, du duplicated. They're, they're just a mess. So this sort of spun off this new theory called the somatic mutation theory that maybe cancer had something to do with chromosomal abnormalities. So these were the two competing theories. And th there was a viral theory that was championed by Peyton Rouse, an American scientist. And these three theories sort of jousted throughout the beginning of the 20th century. Nobody knew who was right. Then in 53, DNA was discovered that sort of ushered in this genetic revolution where everybody turned to DNA. It was known there was mutations in the DNA of cancer cells. Then, then there was a seminal experiment done by Varmus and Bishop in the early 70s that showed that viruses, when they, the, again, the viral theory was very prominent at that time, this one cancer-causing virus, when it infected DNA, it infected DNA with a mutated protein. So the virus had taken, viruses can capture proteins from our cells and incorporate them. It had taken one of our proteins, a kinase, while it was in, in the custody of the virus, it became slightly mutated. Then upon reinfection, it, it, it infected this mutated version of one of our genes, a kinase, with the off switch that was broken. So it was telling the cell to divide over and over. And this, this experiment really anchored in the somatic mutation theory. It took the viral theory, incorporated it into the somatic mutation theory, and they won the Nobel Prize and nobody looked back. Warburg's theory was just cast aside as just a relic of the past. Um, and, and now, you know, the, the story is so long. Now we're able to sequence a genome to cancer cells Anybody in their right mind that looks at th this data cannot say that somatic mutation can be a comprehensive explanation for cancer. It just does not work. So all these biologists now are kind of in this mist of chaos, so trying to you know re trying to figure out what this data means, and, and that's where cancer biology is right now. It doesn't, you know, there's this old established inertia from the old guard about the somatic mutation theory, and as we know, theories don't just change overnight. There's so much inertia from them. And now these, there's new guys like Dom D'Agostino, Tom Seyfried, Paul Davis. He's an astrophysicist that thinks the somatic mutation is absurd. And these guys are really presenting a new image of cancer and what it looks like. And, and therapeutically, we know, you know that, that, that targeting metabolism is one of the most promising things we can do right now. So actually, you know, the, the clinical side is kind of also buttress this sort of theoretical argument about metabolism. Yeah, 100%. I think we actually had Thomas Seafried on the podcast maybe a, a two, three years ago. So I should catch up with him. But it was just exciting at the, at, around that time, some of the nutritional adjuncts with kid drink diet, fasting, zonjus ketones, hyperbaric oxygen therapy, all of that kind of protocol and, and having really, really good clinical results. I mean, yeah, I think from an evidence perspective, it seems quite compelling that something is working here. Um, but I would say that it is fair to also just caveat that some forms of cancer seem to do really well on ketones or, or other metabolisms as well. So I think my conclusion is just like, it's very, very complicated. Just a cancer is not one size fits all. There's maybe different forms of cancers that have different types of preferred metabolisms. 
Absolutely. And, you know, we're just working this out. Yep. We're just, this really is, the science has just gotten started. So all those details are there to be worked out. You know, some, there, you know, well, Walter Longo is showing that just a simple 48, 72 hour fast before chemotherapy yep. could be one of the most potent things we can do, not only to increase the efficacy, but to d- mitigate side effects. Yep. And there's very, you know, elegant biochemical reasons why this occurs. So talk about bang for your buck. It's free, you know, and, and it works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think one thing that I appreciate about your work was your comparison to physics. And before deciding to study computer science, I was going to be a physicist because my, you know, my, my dad was doing his PhD in physics. So I definitely just had that kind of in, in my, in my, my upbringing. Um, it feels like we're at, it's like a similar state in the field where you have string theory and then you have more, it's really just like a, a, almost a blockage of like the next big breakthrough. How do we unify gravity with uh, quantum? Um, and it feels like there's a lot of competing theories that that main momentum of, of super string theory is hitting some roadblocks. Is it testables? Is it just like math equations? That's not even science anymore. Just like uh, abstract abs- representations of a potential universe. Is it even the real universe? Because there's no even experiments to even measure this stuff. Uh, <laughs> so I, I think it sounds like I see a similar pattern with the field of cancer biology where we're like, we're running into kind of a dead end in the sense that we've had a war on cancer for how many decades now? And cancer is still one of the leading kill- causes that are, are, that are killing us. Uh, something, and, and this is after billions of dollars of donations, cancer walks, all like, it's not because of lack of effort. So that as at least is a sign to me of, you can't do the same thing and expect different results, right? That's the definition of insanity, uh, a really great Einstein quote. And that feels like uh, this seems like be a good catalyst to explore alternate theories or revive and rehabilitate theories like Warburg. And it sounds like, you know, it's still early, like let's not over proclaim where the state of the field is, but definitely seems to be a fruitful path of research. Yeah, yeah. And, and y- you know, you're, you're right. We, we, mar- we spend so much effort trying to, to characterize the disease process and how to treat them. And I think that healthcare, the way we do it now, that, that way is, is very misguided. When you look at all these diseases, they all sort of spin out of the aging process. So if we concentrated our effort on that, we would in a single sweep, you know, be treating, preventing every one of these diseases of, of aging and cancer, cancer, the primary risk factor is age. It's not cigarette smoking. It's, it's, it's age. And um, if, if you were to cure cancer tomorrow, if you invented a pill, it would increase the lifespan of the human race by 2.9 years. And the reason is, is because our bodies are just there. We're not slowing this process of entropy and aging. And the next, you know, disease is just queued up and ready to go. And, I, you know, I, I believe that cancer is way more intimately connected with aging than we've given it credit for. There's just so many similarities with these new theories of aging with Sinclair's informational theory of aging and, and what the cancer epigenome looks like. It looks like a very old cell. These cancer cells look like they have an epigenome age of, of 200, you know, over hundred to 200 years old. So they're just sort of hyper accelerated old cells in the context they're in have lost the controls of cell division. So yeah, I, 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 I think that we need a complete retooling of, of what we, the way healthcare, the way research goes and what we need to focus on. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a, a huge can of worms to open up that will 
we'll, we'll say for a later date in terms of yeah, healthcare, is that really sick care? Is it really, I mean, I think that's just, I think, yeah, I mean, lifestyle, inter- I mean, just, yeah, in terms of the health, people are thinking about health. It's, it's very backwards in terms of like, you basically go to the doctor when it's too late or when you actually have something that could be corrected with lifestyle adjustments or, and, and, and that's just like, even the, just the tip of how, how we should think about it as a country, but that will be just like its own can of worms. Let's move on and talk about uh, Sir Hans Krebs. So we got a little bit of sense of his personality. I thought it was quite interesting that, yeah, he was he had to get kicked out by Warburg. Can you can you describe that? Um, why was he incompetent? I mean, he seemed pretty, I mean, at least from the, the reading I had, just a pretty sharp guy, right? Like he definitely was solving some of the harder metabolism questions of his time. And obviously substance couldn't work, you know, landmark i mean just literally the krebs cycle that every high school biology student knows that's named after this guy so clearly it's smart guy i'm curious about the personality uh, well why was he unconfident as a young man well he you know when you when you read so to, to research krebs there's some good good resources there is a, a um, autobiography and another biography done on him by a gentleman in the united states that actually went over and, and spent hours you know days weeks interviewing krebs so I had very good resources, but and he was very open. He just kind of had a difficult childhood. His dad was a real disciplinarian. He was very just wasn't confident in his abilities growing up. He never, you know, he's he's quoted, I never never thought of myself as special. I always thought of myself as kind of an unpopular, unattractive boy. He but he had this ability to focus and just buckle down and work. And that I think that's where, what got him to where he was. And Warburg, you had no choice. In Warburg's lab, you know, you literally worked from, I think it was 8 a.m. till 6 p.m. At night, it was journal entries. And then Sunday was your only day off, but most of them worked on Sunday too. So it literally, I think Warburg, Krebs' quote was, science was the dominant emotion. You know, so it was this crash course in biochemistry by the world's best biochemist. And he went off and, you know, it's, it's funny because he fled Germany, went to Oxford. By then, a lot of these intermediate reactions were known. The glycolytic pathway was known. That had been elucidated by Meyerhoff. Some of the reactions, the intermediate reactions of the Krebs cycle were known. And really, he just, he'd already done the urea cycle. So all he had to do was imagine these intermediate reactions as a cycle. And you knew the last the product, axiloacetate. And then the, the product feeding in from the glycolytic pathway was pyruvate. And then the first step was citrate of the citric acid cycle. So he just did a simple experiment to see if pyruvate plus oxaloacetate made citrate. And it did. And this closed that loop. So it's funny, you know, we talk about his Nobel Prize and Krebs cycle. It was just based on this just extraordinarily simple experiment. But he, he just imagined this series of reactions in a new way that nobody else had until that point. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I mean, it's so elegant. And again, it's like, it's like, it makes sense from like a beauty perspective in retrospect that our body systems are pretty efficient. And it makes sense that these intermediates that cycle would repeat, right? Like it it would be quite inefficient if you have to like dump all this waste product and like ingest new food to like remake all these intermediates. Maybe that's, maybe it's fine, but it seems pretty inefficient, right? It's like car gasoline. You just gotta, it's like, you gotta keep changing all these like wipe windshield wiper fluid and whatnot, a very raw way of getting something to work. Yeah, I think one thing that I thought was interesting was even his reluctance to leave Germany. I mean, this was right in the era of Hitler's rise, World War II, 
I thought it was an interesting factoid that even though Warburg had Jewish ancestry, he was pretty ensconced in safety because Hitler was scared of cancer and, and Warburg was the best cancer scientist at the time. So he was kind of safe. But it sounded like Krebs definitely had his head in the sand for a little bit until like he literally got, again, pushed out, right? He had to get like literally fired, even though, you know, you know, Einstein, all these people had far uh, long left. Curious if there's, you know, more color or thoughts around even that aspect of his, of his life story. Yeah. 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 Warburg, Warburg, what, you know, Warburg's arrogance, I think, didn't allow him to be afraid. He should have been afraid. But his quote was, I was here first <laughs> with regard to Hitler. <laughs> and, and Krebs, yeah, Krebs, I think Krebs was just so comfortable around Freiburg. He was so happy there. He just didn't want to believe that what was going on was going on. And he finally just had to realize that, you know, his life was in danger and that he, he finally made very late, made the, made the, had the realization he had to leave Germany. And so he was lucky enough to get a Rockefeller grant from the U S and this was back when science was so international and there wasn't this, it still is international, but there, you know, it was refreshing to me to, to realize it was internationally back then it was a collective effort. And so the Rockefeller grant allowed him to secure this position at Cambridge. And then, it, you know, then the, the English just took him with open arms. They gave him a new position at a different university. Then he went to Oxford after that. And they built, he had one of the biggest labs at Oxford. So it was, it's, it's, it's kind of a testament to, um, you know, there was a lot of humanity in the book and during this awful time was going, going on with Hitler, but there was still a lot of, a lot of people taking care of each other. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think one thing that I think is important to illuminate is why the Krebs cycle was so foundational. And I think you stated quite nicely, really tied in a couple uh, streams of work in just like being that centerpiece that lot connected everything together. Where it's like how like food turns into substrate that enters the Krebs cycle, and then there's some sort of combustion that's happening. Can you can you state that in, in the elegant way that you do? Yeah, well, it's, yeah, it's this central hub, right? So we, we eat food, it comes in. We all know the glycolytic pathway. Glucose goes through 10 steps to pyruvate to acetyl-CoA, and that enters the Krebs cycle. Well, proteins can make acetyl-CoA, and they can make intermediates of the Krebs cycle. So proteins can feed into this central hub. And then this just processes foodstuffs, right? This, this central metabolic and then, cycle. And then and fat kicks state out. oxidation also turns into acetyl-CoA. Right. So every acetyl food turns into this acetyl-CoA thing. Right, right. And so then that sort of extracts the electrons to another molecule that Warburg found, which is nicotinamide dinucleotide, NAD, NADH. That captures the electrons and then that feeds it into the electron transport chain. So everything coming in gets processed by the Krebs cycle, and then it feeds this electron transport chain, which generates the vast majority of our energy. So it's central, right? It was a central hub of metabolism that our bodies use. And then other sort of reactions spun off. I'm sure as, as organisms evolve, they use this central cycle. And so it became an anabolic cycle. So we, the substrates come off the Krebs cycle for anabolic purposes to build macromolecules that our body. So it's both a breakdown cycle and a repair cycle. You know, it's, it's the, the fire and the emerging Phoenix. It's everything that we, the way we generate energy and the way we repair our bodies and rejuvenate them. Sort of the central hub is the Krebs cycle. Yeah. I mean, this is essentially happening in both in our bodies right now, trillions of times in every single cell is mm -hmm. this thing's running. Well, 
that is doing oxidative phosphorylation. Basically, yeah. So, yeah. So this is like happening as we speak, as all of us speak, as we're breathing oxygen. Um, cool. So, so after the after the Krebs cycle was discovered, what was his focus on research towards his later life, and how did Richard Veach enter the equation here? So, when Krebs was at Oxford, he had he had made a trip to the United States, and he met one of one of Veach's former professors at Harvard, um, George Cahill. And if you, you know, if you know ketosis, if you know, you've heard of George K George Cahill. Yeah. And um, this is the guy, or this is the gentleman over at Harvard that was doing these super long fasting studies. Yeah, exactly. 40 right. Mapping out the 360 day. Right. Mapping out all the way ketosis works, how the body adapts to starvation. And Cahill asked Krebs this, this question, what is the redox ratio of NADPH, right? What does that mean? Well, well, Krebs had turned what they'd realized in his lab. Okay, they knew that ATP was a central carrier of energy at that time. What they were realizing there's there's other carriers of energy: acetyl CoA, um, NADPH, NAD, and and these there's four in ATP obviously. So there's these four what we call nucleotide coenzymes that capture energy from our food, and then they go off diffuse in the cell and and act like tiny batteries. They distribute the energy to all these metabolic processes. Now, the important part of that is they, they dr they're driving everything, the thousands of the reactions that make us healthy and, and whole, make us operate from day to day are driven by largely by these four coenzymes. So Cahill asked him that and he realized he didn't know. And it, you know, it's, this is one of these central questions that, that a biochemist should know. So Veach had entered his lab right as he'd returned from that conference in the United States. And he'd just flown in from Heathrow. You know, he took the red eye. He was exhausted. And Krebs was so excited. He wanted him to start that project right then to figure out this ratio of NADPH. But, the, but that was his entry into, into Krebs' lab was to, to start to elucidate what these other um, coenzyme couples were doing, how charged they were and, and what they were doing to metabolism. And then Veach's, you know, the years he spent in Krebs lab, his first sort of epiphany about metabolism was it was this interconnected ecosystem where these four molecules are driving everything and they are all interconnected themselves. Now, what that means is if you are not able to produce energy efficiently in ATP, it affects NADPH, it affects everything and it ripples through this metabolic landscape. And so they realized how important this was and they realized if they had a way to change these ratios, that it would be profoundly therapeutic and they had no idea. And so this was where it became so interesting because Cahill had discovered beta hydroxybutyrate or discovered how important it was and what it meant to the body. And it just turned out to be one of the, the compound that could actually do that. It could actually supercharge these coenzyme nucleotides that were driving all of metabolism. And that has massive profound effects you know, for the world. Yeah, 100%. And I think this is where it gets quite technical so let's let's try to unpack this for the for our, our for our listeners here where a lot of listeners probably have heard of nad uh it's become a popular supplement for longevity right so that nad precursor that people might be choosing to take as a longevity supplement is exactly the same molecule that's part of that uh nadh nad plus uh intermediary uh couple that redox couple nadph nadp plus uh one of the coenzyme couples that you're talking about. And I think what people 
failed to understand, and I think you discuss it quite nicely, is that just having the substrate there is very different than having the appropriate ratios or the, or the preferred ratios of these couples. Uh, because this is an energy problem, not just like amount of stuff problem. And it sounds like this has been some of the same misconception and misunderstanding that Linus Pauling had with vitamin C and antioxidants, right? It's just like you just eat a bunch of vitamin C and cures everything. No, because it needs to be at the right place and, and utilized in the right way. And it's not oftentimes not the limiting reagent. So I want to unpack that a little bit because I think popular misconception is we just need to dump a bunch of NAD in and that's going to kind of solve the problem. Why is it not so simple? So the context, the reason, okay, so the reason beta hydroxybutyrate is so potent therapeutically, and you have to take this from a broad context. And I, I start from a quote from Veach that he said in the 2002 Gary Taub's New York Times article that ketosis is probably the preferred state of man, right? It's not normal to live the way we live, to have not very much activity and tons of carbohydrates around. That's not normal. And the consequences of that are everywhere. So what happens normally in West, everywhere in the world, um, it's Middle East, the, the ratio of um, insulin resistance and diabetes is, is crazy. So what happens when we don't have much activity and we eat too much carbohydrate, we, the machinery that allows us to process glucose wears, wears out. It just stops working effectively. And there's a variety of reasons for this. Some are epigenetic. Um, but the, the, the upshot is we just cannot use glucose well, and we are unable to charge these, these batteries like ATP and NAD. And so the whole entirety of metabolism suffers. And that's why people with diabetes have this myriad of problems that go wrong. I mean, it's it, every system suffers. And the reason is because their metabolism is just not working. So you cannot write. So your question, can you just throw in like NAD? That doesn't do anything. The take-home point from Veach's work was it's the redox ratio. You have to be taking in substrate constantly. So we're take, if you're taking in beta-hydroxybutyrate, it's this very potent fuel molecule. It's able to charge all these the redox potential and just think of it as a battery. So every one of our batteries is more charged. That in turn is hooked up to our entire metabolism. So everything works better. We make more serotonin, we make more dopamine, we have more energy, we can we can dissolve, you know, deal with toxins better. Everything works better. So that that was the take-home message that tied sort of his first work into this, you know, discovery of beta hydroxybutyrate. Yeah. So let's talk about some of these making things move better. And I think we can maybe describe some of the structural changes. And I think uh, one of the coolest concepts that I had picked up from his work was the increasing the, the electric potential between coenzyme Q and in and, and, and one in a complex one of the electron transport chain. And again, just from like a physics guy by background, it just made a lot of sense to me that if you're increasing that electric potential, that's making it's much more of a stronger pull of that proton through or the electron through and you have less leakage and you get that efficiency there. So that made a lot of sense to me that, okay, that's why ketosis has a, maybe a cleaner burning fuel. And that's what people say, it, or it's more metabolic advantage. It's because of this change in redox. And, and I think, People might have heard of, oh, this is preferred fuel or cleaning burner fuel, but they don't understand 
why that why mechanistically this happens. And I think even something like that, that 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 was happening on, on, on an electric charge perspective seems quite elegant. And I know there's other characteristics around NADPH that drives glutathione, which is a very important ROS absorber, antioxidant absorber. Can you walk through some of these like specific redox reactions that I think people kind of take at face value, like, oh, ketosis is great. And I'd love to just unpack for, for people, like why technically specifically, what are the mechanisms that make it so great? Yeah, th those two are the most that you described are the most unique qualities of beta hydroxybutyrate that make it so unique. And compared to glucose, beta hydroxybutyrate just has more energy in the bonds per two carbon unit. So we always measure per two carbon unit because it gets processed to acetyl-CoA and, and goes from there. So the starting fuel is better. It's like comparing, you know, if you're putting octane fuel in your car versus ethanol, it's just a better fuel. Your, your car will go longer and be more efficient. So it does that by, just like you described, it translates to the electron transport chain, this sort of fuel cell that we have in our mitochondria. And it, it widens what we call the redox span between complex one and the CoQ couple. And what that, you think of that like a waterfall in a water wheel, it just it rate makes the waterfall bigger so the water wheel can capture more energy. And it's the same thing. It's the same concept. The proton ejection into the inner mitochondrial space, there's more force. There's more protons in the inner membrane space, and that translates into a, a stronger chemoosmotic gradient and thus more charged ATP, right? So that's, that's what makes beta-hydroxybutyrate so unique. Now, in the context of most people, by the time they're in their 40s, they begin to develop some degree of insulin resistance. And so when glucose comes in, it has to come into the cell via these insulin responding mechanisms. So the GLUT4 transport protein is in response to insulin to allow it, glucose to come into the cell. Then the pyruvate dehydrogenase complex responds to insulin to convert pyruvate to acetyl-CoA. As you get insulin resistance, those don't work as well. So now what you have in beta-hydroxybutyrate is this fuel that completely bypasses all those mechanisms and enters right at acetyl-CoA. So you can sidestep all these problems with insulin resistance and burn this cleaner fuel right, that people are talking about. It's and it's also the next thing you mentioned, the fact that it, it produces less free radicals, right? So most of the endogenous free radicals that we make from metabolism come from the CoQ couple. Electrons tend to linger on there. But when you burn beta-hydroxybutyrate, it, it increases that span. So it oxidizes the CoQ couple, which means there's less electrons hanging around on it. So less free radicals produced. And then the other huge aspect is that because it charges the NADPH coenzyme couple, that's what cycles this redox antioxidant cycle with glutathione. And it, it has to be cycled, right? So it's got to be constantly being charged to, to neutralize free radicals. And that, that is one of the most underappreciated things about beta-hydroxybutyrate. The evidence, the data coming out now, its ability to neutralize free radicals and produce less is just mind-boggling. I mean, I mean the, you can dose mice with radiation and, and literally save them with beta-hydroxybutyrate. There's less chromosomal damage. And I think that's the reason why you see these, you know, this incredible unprecedented ability for like Tour de France riders to recover when they're using exogenous esters is because it, it's just tamping down the free radical production, you know, that these guys are producing daily. Yeah, no, I appreciate you just walking through that. Cause I think that again, most conversations around ketosis, 
people just don't talk about the redox, that, 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 the biochemical level. I think people kind of hand wave it through. And I think if folks really want to dive deep into mechanisms, obviously pick up Travis's book, but then also read some of the hardcore papers like Sato 95. I mean, it, it, it's, it gets pretty mathematical, which I always, I, I think, which I appreciate because I, I, I believe that math or physics underlines kind of how we reason about more complex systems. It's just that the mathematical tools just have not gotten sophisticated enough to really describe biology because it's so complicated, so many things going around. But it's cool to start seeing these fields bridge in this biochemistry, the metabolic biochemistry side. One, and I think that's, and I think why I find beta hydroxybutyrate is so compelling is that it is the starting subject that drives the changes in all these redox couples where I think a lot of these experiments focused on one of the intermediaries like an NAD. I just saw a paper come out around alpha ketoglutarate, which is another intermediary that has some, shown some impact on longevity on mice. I think it's a pretty cool observation, but these seem to be maybe useful if there's some sort of deficiency within the system and, and there might be a case for that. But it's because beta hydroxybutyrate drives, it's kind of like the waterfall, that, that initial water that kicks everything off. And it's because it's like a, a, a natural substrate. It just seems very elegant why there's such a core primal part of uh, a strategy for longevity and for performance. Yeah, it, it's, it, it's installed in our bodies, right? It's yeah. evolutionarily just here for us. And, and, you know, what I appreciate about Veach, it was that legacy of just hardcore biochemistry right? So much BS gets sort of thrown around in the biology community about, like, for example, antioxidants, what we were just talking about. Yeah. And the new paper on alpha-ketoglutarate, I know exactly what he would have said. He's, well, number one, it's a dibarcarboxylic acid. There's no transport tra protein to get that into the cell, where there's marnocarboxylic acid transport proteins for molecules like ketones and lactic acid. So number one, how does it get in the cell? Maybe it has this you know, beneficial effect by just being in the blood. And the other thing is when you burn beta-hydroxybutyrate, one of the things that happens is you get a 16-fold increase in acetyl-CoA in those first intermediates of the Krebs cycle. So alpha-ketoglutarate is you know, significantly increased just by burning beta-hydroxybutyrate. So there's all these overlapping things. That, you know, the antioxidant thing used to drive me crazy. And there's still this pervasive belief that you can ingest you know, like vitamin C and polyphenols that they are reducing agents, they are antioxidants, but they have to be recycled. And the only way to recycle them is through NADPH. Only known way to increase that ratio is through beta-hydroxybutyrate. Yep, through ketosis. Yeah. yeah, so I, so my perspective, I'm curious to hear your per personal perspective, if you have one, is that I don't box out any potential benefit from something like polyphenols. I would agree that it probably doesn't work in that specific mechanism that you're describing. It's not gonna go into the cell and somehow change the redox ratio. How it may work and maybe why there's some, some data that show that these polyphenols or antioxidants might do some benefit is potentially some signaling mechanism at a, at a higher level. 100%. chemical level. So I'm not gonna, so I wouldn't say, hey, there's nothing there. Like people are completely BSing there. It just, it's not working at the biochemical level. Right. I, yeah, I, I should have qualified it with that statement. Yeah, I mean, it, it could be change, changing the gut biome in a beneficial way. And there's all sorts of mechanisms where they're beneficial. It's just not through that that specific antioxidant mechanism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
So yeah, I, I think we went pretty deep in some of the biochemistry there. But yeah, just popping back to the, the, the human side, I mean, it sounds like you did a lot of firsthand research. It must have been firsthand research because obviously Warburg, Krebs, more historical figures. I presume, you know, there was a lot of contemporaries of each that, you know, we, we, I'm sure we both know and, and, and engage with. How do you even do the firsthand research in terms of like, you know, the, the airplane crash when he's coming back from Oxford and him being a, a hero of New Hampshire by like helping rescue like his passengers on the back half of the aircraft that crashed, literally everyone in the front half died. I mean, it's like a crazy personal story where like he was damn lucky to not have been on that first half of the airplane, but just kind of like the cool heroic aspect where he's just like picking people out of the wreckage and, and kind of being a hero. Any other cool anecdotes there? And two, how'd you even, you know, what was your research process like on, on these cool personal side that might not have been in a historical textbook? Right. Yeah. So yeah, Beach, you know, he, he had a really unique lab. He had, he had a, these guys really just, I mean, spent so much time together. So I got to spend a lot of time talking to the, some of the guys in his lab, particularly to Bill Curtis, who's a very unique guy in, in his own right. And, and, you know, he knew, he knew Veach intimately and just told me these stories and would, we just back and forth emails with newspaper clippings and, and piecing that story together and what, you know, his old writings and things like that. Yeah, he, he didn't talk about the airplane crash. I was just shocked to learn that that happened. But it was a, you know, it was a wonderful story and a big defining moment in his life. But that, that to me is the fun, that's the, the, the fun part of that, this kind of books is really getting into the, the people and what they've done with their lives and the way they felt about things. So that, that's the fun part. And yeah, it's just a lot of, if you can, you know, the personal interviews, you can, because you're taking people's time. So they got to be willing to do it. But, and Tom Seyfried, you know, has spent an enormous amount of time. He's so generous with his time. And he, you know, he was actually spent a lot of time with talking to Dr. Beach about these same things we're talking about, antidocs and redox potentials and things like that. So Tom has been very generous with his time, but yeah, that, that's it. it. That's the fun part. You know, it's a lot of it's just digging through journals and books, but the, the interviews are what make it, I think, bring it to life. Yeah. And, and there's a nice section on Dr. Mary Newport, which, you know, she's been on our program as well. I mean, it's just cool to see some of the very the contemporaries that are actively pushing our understanding of ketosis pop up as these supporting characters who are making cool contributions to the overall science. Now, maybe looking forward do you have some sense of, you know, if Veach were alive, kicking, still in his lab, which I understood to be the case, you know, kind of working until the day he passed, what would he be most excited about? What does he, if you can at least speculate, if you don't know, what are some of the open unanswered questions that he would have liked to see answered? Or is it more just like he felt like the he would need to be more of an educator to help translate some of the discoveries that him and his colleagues and previous you know, generations of scientists have, have observed and it just has not broken across into mainstream acceptance or whatever kind of acceptance that we wanted to talk about here. Yeah, yeah, that's a good, great question. He, you know, he grew up in the era, you know, obviously became an MD first, grew up in this era of uh, fat is bad, Ketogenic diets are awful. Salt is terrible. Um, so he really, he, he took him a long time to come to this sort of, and he did, you know, a few years before he died, he did come to this acceptance of the ketogenic diet could be a healthy way of eating and, and palatable. 
you know, his, his one of his biggest things was you just can't eat that way. It's so unpalatable. Yeah, which so I that mean, was I mean, the, me just putting a pause there. I felt like that was definitely my sense of the earlier generation of ketosis researchers. It was like ketogenic diet is interesting, but no one wants to do it. And I think I'm glad to hear that. Like it's turning the corner. I feel like people cannot really debate that anymore with the like the longitudinal studies from Verta Health, and I mean the the compliance is pretty good. And I think it's like. Maybe that's a generational thing or a cultural thing. Oh, it's, you know, people got to eat their bread and pasta. It's like, well, people are doing that pretty damn well, especially our listeners. I mean, people, I mean, so it's cool to see that. Yeah, that trend. And and nobody's expecting people to be perfect. I mean, it's different if you're in the throes of something, a serious disease like glioblastoma or Alzheimer's, and you're doing this diet therapeutically. But, you know, you don't have to be perfect. You just have to get as close as you can to where it's a a livable lifestyle. But he really evolved on, on the, benefits of the ketogenic diet towards the end of his life but he you know he he wanted to develop obviously the ketone ester and he felt that that could be a game changer for not only a myriad of disease states but just general health he felt it could be kind of this general tonic or or the equivalent of penicillin for for general health and so that was his, his focus and his lab's focus and he was always he was always disappointed that it didn't move quicker, that the general public didn't see the benefit of this and how important it was. And, you know, that, that's where his lab, the focus was, is just to get the importance of what, for example, what a ketogenic diet or a ketone ester or fasting or some combination of those three could mean for prevention of Alzheimer's or early treatment. And, and that's, you know, he was disappointed it didn't move quicker, but that's where the direction he was heading and not just Alzheimer's, you know, we're talking about cancer and, and, all the free radical diseases like ALS and Parkinson's and different disease states. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I mean, in, in one sense, I think both your work and our work at HVMN are trying to help carry on that legacy in terms of translating the science into tangible applications and, 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 and cultural shifts of people. Right. And I think, um, and I think it's, it, it seems like, like this is the, the, the evolution of science dissemination, right? It, it just takes time. You need some generational gap to, to kind of pass on and, and, and you have the next generation like carry that torch forward. So I'm, I'm basically bullish on overarching bend towards truth, towards science. And it feels like, especially with COVID, with uh, people just relooking at their health We've just seen interest into our channel, into what we talk about in terms of metabolism, just skyrocketing, especially when you look at the comorbidities of bad outcomes of COVID is things that have direct potential root causes from metabolic syndrome, like diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular disease risk. So it feels like, and I think as you noted at the top of the program here, that you know having kind of COVID and, and health and metabolism being of focus seems to be just like a at least turning a lemonade from lemons, or at least a catalyst for people to start thinking more about all, all of these topics. Oh, 100%. And I, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, a little bit, I don't understand the public health officials, why they haven't made, aren't making more of an emphasis of that. That's something you can do right now. We know that it's affecting people. There's worse outcomes, more severe disease. If you have insulin resistance, type two diabetes, you know, obesity, any of these things make it worse. Even just high blood High blood sugar is correlated to worse cytokine science storms. So it's such an easy thing to address publicly. You know, and I, I'm with you. It, 
it's shocking how long this social change takes. You know, you look at the history of smoking, which was easy to show as bad in, in the 50s. I think it was at the highest point, it was half the adult population smoked. And it took a long time to, to kind of just beat into people's heads that this is a terrible thing, but it changed. It took decades and decades. And I'm sure it's the same thing for the, the fat is bad dietary mantra that was, you know, pounded into people for decades. And it's just this slow process of change. But it, yeah, it's frustrating how long it takes. Yep. But you're right. It's it's definitely changing. Yeah. I mean, I think my whole sense of, I mean, I think just like through the pandemic, through just also just political unrest, I think it's like what we can do is con like control ourselves and like our immediate people around us and through conversations that hopefully illuminate and spark people's own internal fire to like investigate further into these areas, right? It's just like above both of our pay grades to say, hey, um, let's change public policy today. I, I wish we could just do that or be in a position to help influence that. But I think what we can control today is we do our best for ourselves and then do our best to share the knowledge. And then uh, again, be optimistic that humanity bends towards truth, bends towards uh, the data, which um, again, I think just from our vantage point, it feels like it's accelerating where yeah, when I first Googled ketosis for the first time, I still remember this very distinctly that the first result was ketoacidosis, <laughs> right. a, a degenerate form of ketosis, which is basically runaway velocity for ketone production, particularly for type 1 diabetics. And now, fast forward, and hopefully a lot of the content that we've made and education that we've made and uh, many others have made, yeah, ketosis is much more rehabilitated at this point. I mean, celebrities are using the ketogenic diet. So... I've seen that even change within my little short snapshot involved in this space. So I'm optimistic. I'm curious. Yeah. You know, what's your take? What's, what's your sentiment here? If you had to kind of predict. I'm optimistic too. I don't think how you can turn back, from, you know, from people that it's so clearly beneficial health wise, you know, to, to eat a different way and, and, and beta hydroxybutyrate. And it, it's always shocking to me too, when you look at the history of, of science, especially health, that you can lose knowledge so easily. And, and the ketogenic diet's a perfect example. It was standard of care in the 20s for, for pediatric epilepsy. Then when the anti-seizure drugs came along in the 30s, it was, it was vanished, it was gone, right? And so it, it finally became resurrected by Jim Abrahams when, when Charlie became sick and he used, Meryl Streep made the movie. And he was just, he would never known if he didn't find it himself in the you know, corner of a textbook in the library, he found some mention of a diet. And Charlie was, it was between going to see a herbalist in the mall or going to see Freeman at Johns Hopkins, and they flipped a coin. And they went to the herbalist in the mall, Charlie didn't get better. So then they're like, well, let's try this weird diet in Johns Hopkins. And they went and the next day he was seizure free, right? So we completely lost that medical knowledge. And I, and it's also shocking to me because fasting was the invoke treatment for obesity in like the 50s and 60s therapeutic fasting and they'd go, you know, months and, and fast patients. And then all of a sudden I look at my like 95 textbook in biochemistry and it, the only little section on ketosis says it's a, a metabolic state people enter on very low calorie diets or um, when they're not eating and it has to be monitored because it yeah. could be fatal. Yeah. <laughs> but they'd forgotten all that knowledge from therapeutic fasting. And so it's very clunky. Bi biology is a, it takes a totality of evidence and it just takes, you know, it just, it's amazing how much knowledge can be lost and then resurrected over time.
It's an interesting observation of why that doesn't seem to be the case with information tech or physical like engineering problems. And I think it's because the human body is so resilient that like if you're doing something dumb like smoke, okay, I don't want to, you know, piss off smokers out there, you know, it's your choice, but it takes like years to like accrue that kind of damage where it's like, oh, that was bad. Right. Um, and I think, and, and luckily like humans are pretty damn resilient where we can't eat a lot of ham, you know, whatever, Coca-Colas and all of that and be okay for like, you know, some years before the compensation breaks down. Right. And I think that's where that, that time gap makes it confusing. And then there's culture, social propaganda, then it's all mixed up where I think with something that's like a device, this iPhone works or it doesn't. Okay. <laughs> like, so, so I think. I wish we are as simple as a car or, a, or an iPhone. And I think this would move quicker. Exactly right. And you throw in the concept of hormesis into there where things that are bad for you are, are beneficial at a certain dosage, right? And it makes it even more confusing. So yeah, it's, it's, it's just muddling through those things and trying to find general principles. But it takes time. It's just the human body. You, can, you can't imagine anything more complex, a machine that has more complexity. And it's so hard to figure out within that nanoscale of a cell, what's really going on. And, you know, but within, within my lifetime, I remember when the human genome project was just a dream. And now we, we have a thousand dollar genome. We can sequence a genome for a thousand dollars or less now. So yeah, it's, it's, it's remarkable and exciting. how fast it goes. Yeah. By the same I, I do have an audience question that I want to ask before we uh, wrap up and I want to hear about your future projects and, a little bit about your personal kind of protocols and ideas here. Christy Storoshuk wants to go back to maybe uh, what we talked about in terms of antioxidant glutathione. She would love to hear more thoughts around the antioxidant potential of cells upregulated by ketones and how ketones support glutathione re recycling via the ratio of NADPH and ADP and how this differs from eating and supplementing antioxidants. It sounds like we covered a lot of this actually in terms of why ketones are different from just ingesting. And she seems pretty switched on by even knowing about the NADPH, NADP ratio. Any additional color you want to add there? No, no. It's, it's one of the most profound aspects of, of ketone metabolism, right? And, and the data, when you give mice a ketone supplement before or, or, or after they're exposed to ionizing radiation versus without the control group, there's about 50% less chromosomal damages. So the free radicals that you know, escape from the mitochondria, just wreak all sorts of havoc and, and, and cause mutations in DNA, you reduce them just by 50%. That's profound. And that's got far-reaching far, far implications because the, one of the main theories of aging, the main proximal causes of damage is just endogenous free radicals. So yeah, from a purely longevity, longevity perspective, that's perhaps you know, one of the most amazing things you could do. And I think that kind of almost comes full circle where, yeah, I my understanding and thinking around the literature is that some of the longevity benefits you see from fasting caloric restriction etc is mediated through bhp right because that's kind of the main metabolite like you know a number of things are happening but it sounds like that is the core molecule that drives so many of the downstream effects so i mean i, I think that's i was that was one thing that was almost disappointed in reading sinclair's book that that was not mentioned in some of the things i feel like he didn't fully understand that aspect of metabolism uh, the central role of BHB. Right, right. And that, that it's an epigenetic signaler, right? The, the core of the theory, informational theory of aging is that the BHB fits right into that, what, you know, slowing that sort of epigenetic drift that 
that David Sinclair says is the proximal cause of aging, it's, it's right there because it changes the way genes are expressed. And one of the ones that's upregulated is FOXO, which increases intercellular antioxidants, DNA repair enzymes, all the good things we associate with caloric restriction can be accomplished through beta hydroxybutyrate. 100%. So I don't think it's yeah. a, a this for David. I think it's more just like this well, biology is so big and so complicated that there's probably like 17,000 things that he, you know, has studied and, and understands much more deeply than like kind of my little pigeonhole or focus area around just ketosis. But I think it's an overall tapestry. Like how do we, I think that's like the, the whole point of science. How do we weave together the most interesting, most important parts of it? And I think sounds like you would agree as well that ketosis, beta-hydroxybutyrate, that's an important part of that tapestry. And it should be something that hopefully Sinclair and other folks also investigate as part of their overall understanding of the space. And I'll, you know, leave it at that. Yeah, no, no, what he's doing is Sinclair is absolutely remarkable. You know, that, that science of epigenetic aging is just, that's the next, I think, re biological revolution is well, everything we're talking about is slowing aging, these caloric restriction pathways, beta-hydroxybutyrate. But what he's talking about is actual epigenetic rejuvenation. I mean, turning the clock backwards. So yeah, what he's working on and the theories is absolutely the forefront to me in, in, in biology right now. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, that's definitely future forward-facing stuff where we can literally, yeah, turn back the age, the, the direction of time and, and beat, defeat the second law of thermodynamics. Uh, maybe not the actual law, but maybe the aging part of biology. So this is a wonderful conversation. Again, it was just a delight to just be able to kind of nerd out on some of the mechanisms that not a lot of people honestly can have a thoughtful conversation about. So really a pleasure, Travis. Where can our listeners find you? And do you have any hints on what you're interested in working on next? Uh, whether that's a new book, new research, or new protocols, or like, you know, personal biohacks or, you know, whatnot that you're experimenting with? Yeah. Um, Twitter is a good place. And what I'm interested in now, I have a foundation that we, we've, a cancer foundation I started when I wrote the first book, and we've sponsored a lot of research. We're going to be sponsoring a, a very large, helping to sponsor a very large clinical trial at Cedar sinai It'll be the largest trial on ketogenic diet for glioblastoma to date as an adjunct cancer therapy. So that's very important work. We just need to prove that this, you know, this works to the, the general, do a, a really well represented, good study and, and prove it to the community. And the other part we're working on is, is with Steve Horvath is just very interesting looking at epigenetic age and interventions to changing the epigenetic clock. Because like we said, that, that's sort of the new frontier in biology and it's accessible, remarkably accessible. We didn't think who knew there was a built-in mechanism in our cells to just reset back to, to youth. So that's another project we're working on and stay tuned. I hope we hope to have results. Quick. Awesome. <laughs> well, let us know how that goes. And we'd love to have you back on the program once that comes out and once you have some data to talk about or for your next book, oh, maybe yeah, there's yeah. going to be a book out of whether, you know, your work out of the, you know, it sounds like you're going to have an epigenetic related book in, in the next few years. That's my <laughs> hypothesis. That's my prediction. Uh, Travis, again, a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much. Thank you.